This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. I am uh, Professor McAdams, and um, I'm going to talk today about how the law works expressively, a subject I've figured today I've been working on since some of you were in the fifth grade. Um, uh, and the book is finally uh, done. This is my advanced copy. It's uh, coming out February 9th, available for pre-order on Amazon.com. Um, and um, I'm excited to, to talk about it. Uh, this is perhaps one of the last times I will, uh, having uh, moved on to some other things. Um, I'd start with the centrality of legal sanctions. So obviously within law and economics at this law school, it's almost implicit in many questions that you get much analysis that what's going on with law is the legal sanctions, the liability or the, the, the criminal punishment. And, and, but that idea within law and economics, that focus on sanctions is not new to law and economics. The uh, 19th century uh, legal theorist John Austin talked about a command theory of law that defined what law is as having to, to do essentially with having a sanction for noncompliance. And of course, Holmes's bad man was the person who was only interested in a prediction of when the government would make him pay. For, having, for his actions, and that was how Holmes went about defining what the law was. Well, the puzzle that that generates is that we sometimes observe compliance without sanctions. And I talk about a lot of these examples, and I think in the uh, description for today's CBI, I may have mentioned um, uh, pirates, but I, I, I'll uh, have to talk about that later because we don't have time for it. Um, now. Uh, but medieval Iceland, we do have time for. Uh, there are about 300 years in uh, medieval Iceland where they had courts and they had a thriving legal culture and people sued and went to court and got judgments. And the really weird thing was there was no executive. There was no legislature. There was just the court. So there was no one to enforce the judgment. There was no bailiff. There was no sheriff. If the defendant refused to pay the plaintiff when the plaintiff won, the plaintiff had to enforce the judgment himself. And that leads to the question, why would you bother going to court under those circumstances? I mean, if you have the physical power to, to compel the, the, the defendant to pay, then why wouldn't you just compel them to pay before you went to court? And if you lack the physical power to compel them to pay, then why would you go to court knowing that you couldn't enforce any judgment that you want? And yet people went to court and got judgments, and, and these judgments appeared to matter greatly to them, so they apparently were not worthless, and yet it wasn't, uh, the value of them wasn't uh, in, from sanctions. A contemporary example, many international courts uh, have no real sanctions to enforce their judgments, and yet there's compliance in many cases. Professor Ginsburg and I wrote a paper uh, several years ago about the International Court of Justice where we estimated at least 60% compliance with its judgments despite not having sanctions. And if you think about constitutional uh, judicial review of the actions of the president or Congress, the president or Congress don't fear sanctions from the Supreme Court, right? I mean, the, the, it's not like they're going to be a fight between the federal marshals 
and the Secret Service over whether or not the president complies with the Supreme Court. And Congress could just defund the court if it wanted to, and they would show up and the doors would be locked. And so it's, it's not clear why Congress ever goes along with a decision that it's uh, its laws are unconstitutional. Why does Nixon turn over the, the uh, White House tape recordings that wind up uh, causing the downfall of his presidency just because the Supreme Court told him to? That's compliance without sanctions. Now, there is another answer here, which you don't get a whole lot at this law school, but because we're, we, we do mostly economics. Uh, but in other social sciences, they talk about another theory, and that's legitimacy. That's so psychology and sociology say that people have a tendency to defer to legitimate authority, just like they might defer to a religious authority. You might just go along with what the religious uh, authority says. Um, you might go along with what the legal authority says if you believe it's legitimate, if you have this sense that either the process of creating law or the substance of the law itself or the lawmaker is legitimate, then you would go along with it. And my question in this project has always been, is, is that all there is? Is that it? It's either deterrence or legitimacy because that's this long running debate between the social sciences about law. It's deterrence, maybe incapacitation, but both of those emphasize sanctions. No, it's legitimacy of some sort or another. And my argument is there are other uh, causal mechanisms besides these, and it's important because compliance is important. So we really should try to understand all of the mechanisms by which law influences behavior. And I have two expressive theories in the book, and I'll spend most of my time talking about expressive theory number one. And it is, yes? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. It's not. It's very simple. All I have to do is push that button. And then I can show you, you know, all these great, cool things. Boom, 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 boom. Is that all there is? Expressive theory one. And situations requiring coordination, legal expression, influences behavior by providing focal what is coordination and what is a focal point? It'll be simpler to give examples than to give a definition. Um, and these will start off being very disconnected from law. But suppose you needed to coordinate on a meeting place with someone. You and another person are shopping in a big department store, and for some reason your cell phones don't work, and you become separated and lost, and you need to find each other. And you don't know where to look. Well, you have a problem of coordination. You need to match your behaviors in a certain way. And if we just looked at it in a pure mathematical way, we might say there are you know, uh, 300 or 700 places where you could meet in this large department store. And uh, what are the odds that within uh, the, the rest of the day, you will just randomly find each other in some spot? Not very good, but you might find each other because there might be a kind of focal point solution to this problem. Perhaps where we met last time. Maybe when we shopped here a month ago, we began our shopping day by meeting at this uh, particular booth uh, where they sell watches. And so we think, oh, you know, maybe that will, be, that will occur to the other person as the solution to our problem. And so we both wind up meeting there or perhaps the central fountain on the first floor is the natural meeting place because it's kind of it's kind of the center in some sense of this department store. The first floor is somehow more basic. The center of it, the fountain, gives it a salience. 
uh, that makes it occur to both of us as a way to solve the problem. So that's what we mean by a focal point, something that for reasons of, of culture or history or history between us stands out as a solution to our problem. How about it matching color for money? That is, someone's going to pay the two of us, you and me, to uh, name a color if we name the same color. And of course, it would be trivial if we could communicate. So let's say we can't. What color do we name? Um, here I'm going to give a sort of formal representation of this game um, where there are two players and they each uh, only, we, we've narrowed the choices down to red and blue. And so, you know, if we, if we have both name red, then both of us get paid uh, one, let's say it's a thousand, it's one grand, okay? And if we, if we match different, uh, if we name different colors, we get zero. So we don't really care whether we match on red or match on blue, we just want to match. Now, the fortunate thing, there are only two numbers, is our, our odds of, of connecting randomly are pretty good. But is there any focal point solution to this? No? Maybe if you stare about it, I mean, you have a dollars writing on this. You really just going to do it randomly? How about blue? Because there's blue in the, in the slide, right? That, that would be the idea of maybe I've tried to make focal how to play this game, which is to play blue, because I put blue in the slide. And, um, and so that would be perhaps a focal point. Um, the idea is, of course, that uh, the next idea is that expression can create focal points. And this is already embedded in the examples that if the, if the two parties can communicate, well, the problem just completely goes away. We'll just say, we'll agree to name red, and then that, that, that solves the problem. Um, but the important thing here is that a third party expression could work just as well. So if you were about to play this, this game, name the color, except the, the slide was black and white, and so it gave you no hint. And then right before you, um, you did it, you heard someone out in the hall scream, you know, red, red, red. Then you might go, oh, why? The, the other person must have heard that too. So now this is salient, so I'll play red. And so the third party expression can help influence how people play the game. And notice the person out in the hall, it doesn't have to be legitimate. They could be you know, a crazy person, and they are not threatening you with sanctions for not naming red. So this is independent of uh, changing the payoffs or legitimacy. So the argument then is that legal expression is one way of creating a focal point. So example one, drive on the left or drive on the right. Suppose we had a new society and there were no cars, there were only motorcycles. So no one really, uh, they weren't designed to drive on the left or right side of the road. And we have people in society who came from left driving societies and right driving societies. What side of the road would you drive on? Well, you just you really want to drive on the same side that everyone else drove on. So imagine that the, you know somebody could be the government puts up signs that says drive on the right, and everywhere you see signs that say drive on the right, there are no sanctions and there's no legitimacy because we don't even know who put these signs up. But they all say drive on the right. We might imagine those signs would affect how people drove because they want to solve uh, this problem. How about a more complicated example? I think the rituals often have to have in them some consistency. That is, if it's important to honor the flag, then when we raise the flag or when we dispose of the flag, we want to have some ritual that, in which we all do it the same way. Um, but how should we do it? If we get rid of an old flag, 
Should we burn it? Should we bury it? I mean, oddly, the rule is to burn it, which is also flag burning is also supposed to be a way of dishonoring the flag. But um, it turns out there's a federal statute for U.S. Code Section 5, which identifies what you're supposed to do to show respect to the flag. There are, of course, no sanctions to this law. It would be a violation of the First Amendment if there were sanctions. But you might imagine the law having a profound effect on how people who want to coordinate with other people in a ritual that honors the flag would actually behave with respect to the flag. Now, the thing about both of those examples is that there's no conflict. There's, you know, I tried to define the drive on the left, uh, drive on the right, as such that uh, all that people want to do is to, is to match their behaviors like with the colors. What if there's conflict? Law would not really have much of a focal point function if it only applied where there's no conflict, because law mostly applies where there is conflict. So this is an important uh, expansion of the idea. Um, well, take the one-way sign. Um, a person who wants to go the wrong way on a one-way street, in a sense, is in conflict with the people who want to go the other way on the one-way street. And yet, we could imagine the one-way sign working without sanctions or legitimacy, because you would be a fool if you ignored it. That is, you see the one-way sign, you know that other people see the one-way sign, and you expect that there's a chance that you'll have a head-on collision if you go the wrong way. So your reason to obey the one-way sign is independent of sanctions or legitimacy. It's simply to coordinate with people, and those people I expect to be coming uh, against me. The same thing is true of the traffic light. If you imagine two drivers meeting at an intersection on perpendicular roads at the same time, and the traffic light uh, uh, has red for one and green for the other, the pure, there's going to be a, an expressive effect, which is just, I don't want to crash in the middle of the intersection. So if I see a light, or if I see um, a person doing this, you know, then that makes me think that what's the salient solution to this problem? If, if, the, if the palm is pointed at me, it's for me to stop and the other person to go. And I have a reason to do that, because if I go when the other person goes, I'll crash into them in the middle of the intersection. So much of the book is about taking this traffic example. I mean, the traffic example by itself is not trivial. A million people die a year in traffic accidents worldwide. So it would be good to know why people comply to the extent they do and not to be wrong about that. Um, but the, the book tries to use the tra to generalize the traffic example and to apply it in a great many areas. I mean, in general, that's, that's why I wrote a book. Uh, was because I felt like to make the case, I had to give example after example after example in order to show that the argument had a broad uh, domain and not just a narrow one. But I'll very quickly talk about um, just one uh, other uh, example. Um, so the, my idea is that uh, in order that, that the drivers in, in my examples or really have a dispute with other drivers. It's a dispute over who has priority. I want to have priority, you want to have priority. So we could generalize that to other kinds of disputes where people dispute over property or territory or something else. I want it and you want it. The, to make it work, it has to have the same structure as the traffic example, which will not always be the case. But it will be the case as long as 
some form of unrestricted conflict is the worst outcome for both of us. So in the traffic example, if we don't restrain ourselves, we crash in the middle. And that's the worst outcome. That's worse than my stopping and letting you go. So are there disputes that have this form? I say, sure, there are plenty of them where the worst outcome is something like violence, or maybe just a shouting match, or maybe something else. Um, and so the, 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 we, we still have this need to coordinate. We're, we're in conflict with each other, but we want to coordinate to avoid the worst possible outcome. And then legal expression creates a focal point for the avoidance of violence. So smoking disputes are my first example. You have a smoker and a non-smoker sitting in a restaurant or a bus station in the same area, and they want to be there, and one wants to smoke a cigarette, and the other wants to be free from exposure to cigarette smoke, so they have a conflict. But I think it's reasonable to say that both of them, in, in many cases, would regard the worst possible outcome as actually getting into a, a shouting match over it, where people stared at them and they exchanged profane insults or, or maybe smacked each other or something like that. That would be just like, afterwards, both people would say, wow, that was just the dumbest thing in the world. So you want to avoid this outcome that is like crashing in the middle of the intersection, and that's where a no smoking sign has this effect of sort of saying, here is the, equilibri here, here is the uh, particular way of resolving this coordination problem, and, and, and now this is the salient outcome. It's as if the no smoking sign is saying stop to the smoker and waving on the non-smoker. And so I then in the book talk about property disputes like this, constitutional disputes, international disputes. Expressive theory number two. Oh, wow. We're going to have a lot of time. Good. Um, I, I, guess I, I guess I was speaking rather quickly there. Um, the basic claim of the second uh, idea is just that law is also information. So the first idea is law is a focal point. The second idea is that law contains information. It contains information about the beliefs of the lawmaker. And, um, and people can then, um, inf you know, uh, people in general take the beliefs of others as, as input into their own beliefs. So the, knowing something about the beliefs of the lawmakers uh, can cause them to change their beliefs, and changing their beliefs can change their behavior. Now, there are two basic uh, kinds of information I talk about. One is about, that, that the, about public attitudes, and the other is about risk. Again, I use the example of smoking. If a community, a local town, a town, passes a, smoke, a public smoking ban you know, of some sort for the first time, then one thing people might infer from that is, especially because legislators are elected and are experts in the attitudes of the people who elect them, one thing I might infer from that is, oh, the public, the community is has stronger uh, attitudes of disapproval of smoking than they used to, because it used to be that there was no smoking anti-smoking law. Now there is one. Uh, I infer from that a shift of attitudes in the direction of greater disapproval of like, people being exposed, non-smokers being exposed to other people's smoke. Um, a second possibility is that uh, I infer that the legislators believe that the harms of secondhand smoking uh, are, are great and greater than they previously believed. 
Uh, and, and, uh, and so I update my belief about uh, the harms of secondhand smoking. And either of these then, uh, I argue, could change behavior. Why? Well, the first one, we could talk about this in Q&A. Um, the first one has to do with a long literature saying that people value uh, approval and seek to avoid disapproval, that that's a kind of uh, a, a very uh, uh, diffused uh, incentive for a behavior uh, that, that motivates people to comply with norms of different sources, of different sorts. So if you change their beliefs about what is generally approved or disapproved, you'll, you can change their behavior. I mean, to put it differently, um, well, let me go to the second one. So the second one is, of course, that if I think, if I'm a, if I'm a non-smoker, and I think now that uh, secondhand smoke is more dangerous than I used to think, well, I will uh, do more. I'll be willing to bear more of a cost to try to avoid secondhand smoke, and that might include confronting smokers. Uh, and if I'm a smoker and I think that secondhand smoking is more harmful than I used to, um, I might expect more confrontation if I uh, don't give in. And also, if I'm altruistic and care about other people, I might just decide I don't want to harm other people in this way, that I didn't previously think I was harming them. Um, so, um, yeah. Other examples of the information theory, seatbelt laws, there is some data that, that uh, sanctions cannot explain the degree to which seatbelt laws work in getting people to wear seatbelts. The sanctions were very trivial, and oftentimes they were contingent on things like, you know, we couldn't, in some jurisdictions, you can't stop someone just for not wearing their seatbelt. And you might imagine that uh, a mandate of wearing seatbelt convinces people that, that driving unbelted is more dangerous than they previously believed. Uh, breastfeeding laws are kind of uh, the, this new phenomenon which are entirely sanctionless. All the law will say is uh, a mother has the right to breastfeed in, in public any place she has a right to be in public. Um, and that's all it will say. It doesn't say, and anyone who tries to interfere with that right is subject to fine. No, it doesn't say anything like that. So what effect might that have? Maybe it has no effect. But if it has an effect, it would be, I think, through this informational route of saying public attitudes have shifted about this. And if you don't, uh, if you don't like um, uh, uh, women breastfeeding in public, you are in the minority. You might think that you were in the majority, and maybe you were at one time, uh, but you're not anymore. So you're likely to received mostly disapproval for objecting. Um, the repeal of unconstitutional laws, of course, there's no sanction here. There are laws against sodomy, laws uh, enshrining or requiring racial segregation that were uh, ruled uh, unconstitutional a long time ago, but then sit there on the books. And then people say, well, maybe we should get rid of them. It's a symbolic act. Um, this argument suggests there might be more than simple symbolism. You might affect behavior of people uh, uh, if you, by expressing the attitudes have changed in a certain way. You might uh, change the, the willingness of people to be uh, tolerant or intolerant of, of things. Um, drug legalization, um, I talk about a bit, and I say um, that the you might, this is an example where uh, there might be an unintended consequence, an unintended expressive consequence of the action of legalizing a drug, which is 
um, to send a signal that uh, the legislatures no longer believe the drug is dangerous to people uh, and that public attitudes are tolerant of its use and that might increase drug use in a way, you know, independent of the other reasons drug use might go up, which is, you know, there's less risk of buying the drug or something, um, which I don't offer as a reason not to legalize drugs, I just offer as a reason to think through what the best way of, of, of legalizing would be, because you might, you might figure out ways to mute the message uh, that encourages drug use, and I argue that Portugal, uh, which about 10 years did some serious decriminalization, um, one way to interpret some peculiar aspects of their law is that they were muting this expressive, this unintended expressive message um, by the way they went about uh, decriminalizing. Um, yeah, legal compliance is never perfect. I took this photograph a block from my house. Um, I, just, I just loved it, you know, in a way. Like, I, I really disapproved of the person, but then some part of me was like approving of them at the same time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was like, if I had that car, I probably would park me where I wanted to as well. Um, and so, conclusion, there is more to legal compliance than deterrence uh, and legitimacy. And so, questions? Yes? Can you talk about whether you think there are a lot of examples where like, making something illegal actually adds to its appeal, like Germany versus our take on tea and drinking? I missed the last part. Germany? Germany's laws as opposed to American laws about drinking in your teen years. So, um, yeah, I don't. I don't talk about that, but yeah, I think that's that's a, a possibility, um, of course. So there, there is. I mean, this is a you know, I, I, in the past I wrote about social norms and law, and this was a, a point that people would make is that sometimes um, you know the, the forbidden fruit idea works. It's really uh, entirely empirical when that's true, when it's not true. But yeah, it could be that. Um, that you have a, um, you know, pr Professor Eric Posner wrote about this in his book on social norms. You, know, you could, it could be that you want to signal your commitment to a group that you're in, and for some groups, the way you signal your commitment is to burn your bridges with the larger society, which means to violate their rules. So when you, when, when something becomes unlawful, then it becomes more attractive. That's certainly possible. I don't think that's generally the case. One thing I do talk about um, is I, I, another kind of signaling besides attitudinal signaling and risk signaling. I talk about what I call violation signaling, which is that, that when you change the sanction for something, it's possible that, what you, that one piece of information that you're signaling is, wow, people are doing this a lot and getting away with it. So it could be that you undermine deterrence when you raise the sanction. It could be. I mean, it's empirical again. But the, but the idea would be, um, I mean, I'll, I'll use a sensitive subject I use in the book, which is plagiarism. You know, I, I remember when I was at Illinois, they used to, um, they, they had this weird way of, of announcing punishments for plagiarism, which was they would just say, we punish someone, they wouldn't name the person. And they did this, this is a brief description of what they did and the sanction they got. 
And I remember thinking, now is that increased deterrence or decreased deterrence? And it all depends on what people's expectations were before. Like if they thought no one's doing this and no one's doing it because you couldn't possibly get away with it. And then they see a bunch of people getting sanctioned. They're like, they might rethink and go, wow. People are doing this. Why are they doing it? They think they'll get away with it. Maybe they will get away with it. These people are just unlucky. Maybe uh, you know they're only catching one person out of every you know twenty. Um, actually, I think we catch them all. But uh, that's so anyway, that's just similar to what you were saying. Um, is is the idea that when, when you pay attention to expressive effects, um, it might complicate um, the normal deterrence story. That a federal law, you mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I, I, I'd say that um, if we're talking about. So there are a lot of implications. You know, there, there's, there's some suggestive empirical evidence for everything I've said. I've done some experimental work. Um, but a lot of what I'm trying to do in this book is to say, you know, here there are things to be tested. So I try to draw out implications. And one of the implications is, as you just said, I think for attitudinal signaling, that local law would be more powerful, expressively more powerful, than federal law or than state law. Why? Because this has everything to do with the theory of why people care about approval and disapproval. But, uh, but the idea is that you care about approval and disapproval of people who you interact with. Now, you might interact with people, on the, on, of course, on social media. So this is much more complicated today than it used to be. But I still think that mostly what you care about is when you go out to a restaurant in your town, what would the people around you in the restaurant think of your smoking? Well, that, the local law is very good evidence of that. The federal law is terrible evidence of that. Right? The state law is uh, in between. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I argue that, that um, I mean, you know, there are a lot of other factors that go into whether you, you want these laws to be local, state, or federal. But, but if you're just trying to harness the, the kind of free power of compliance that comes from attitudinal signaling, then it, it, it favors local law. I, I think down here, uh, if you're signaling risks and benefits, um, you know, it turns out that uh, the, the argument here uh, has to do with the wisdom of crowds and the fact that the legislature is a, large, a group of people. And so um, when they uh, vote on something, then, and they vote to, say, ban public smoking, your inference is that this crowd of people uh, decided that secondhand smoke was dangerous in a way that they didn't previously recognize. And actually, the way it works out in a, in a formal model, the bigger the group, the more impressive the signal. So actually, it might be that Congress, on this grounds being bigger than almost any state legislature and certainly than any local legislature, would have a more powerful signal, uh, expressive effect uh, for, for, for changing beliefs about risks. Now. 
Yeah, that's, that's the theory, and it has to be tested, but I, I, I put myself out there by saying, you know, this, this suggests that, you know, if you, if you did experiments and you just told people about things that Congress did or things that local, uh, uh, their local uh, town did, that uh, to the extent it changed their beliefs, I would think more belief change would occur here if it's local and here if it's federal. Would you call this, <clears throat> this uh, other reason for, for compliance some sort of rational self-interest? Is there a rational self-interest needing coordination that makes people comply to certain laws? Yeah, all of these reasons were founded in rational self-interest. And then why would there be a rational self-interest in coordination that could, in most cases, uh, be more important for people than many other interests they might have? What's the value of coordination? Well, so that, that has to be argued out, I guess, on a case-by-case -case basis as I go through my example. So for smoking, I mean, it, let, let, me, let me emphasize this. The, I don't, in the, in the book, I don't shy away from the limits of the theory. In fact, I sort of highlight the limits of the theory because besides saying to economists, you really should take seriously this other effect that law has on behavior, I also say that there's entirely too much loose talk about uh, expressive consequences and sending a message. You know, sending a message is one of these rhetorical tropes that often just has no content to it. If you and so I try to say, you know, if you if you hear someone making a send a message claim, you could ask them, are you making uh, uh, an informational story? What 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 informational updating are you imagining people are getting from from the thing you're saying is sending a message, uh, or you have a focal point story or something like that. So. Um, so the limits of the focal point theory, I think of as being a, a virtue rather than a defect. And here's the limit, is that, as I said, in the smoking dispute, it, the theory works to the extent you have two people, both of whom regard the worst outcome as not, the worst outcome is not giving in. The worst outcome is when both of them insist on getting their way and refuse to back down, and some kind of altercation occurs, right? But that's not everybody. Right? There are people who would be like, you know, I am happy to get in a shouting match. You know, I'm happy to get in a shouting match every day. I'm happy to get in a shouting match, you know, three, five, six times a day, but as long as I'm getting my way. You know, I've, I've you know, like, there's some anti-smoking people are like this, right? You know, they just think that, you know, smoking is an immoral abomination and it's their job in life to sort of present that fact to people. And so for those people, this, this theory would clearly not apply. They, they are not seeking to coordinate with the person. They have a single strategy that is best, no matter what the other person does, which is to always insist. And so this, so that's why you need sanctions or legitimacy in that case. So I'm not the, the other thing I say. I'm not I this. I don't really reject either deterrence or, or legitimacy in in this book. I, I there are times in which I try to use an example and say. There's no good deterrence story in this case. There's no good legitimacy story in this case. So then I can use, you know, one of these expressive theories to uh, to explain it. But I am absolutely not arguing that we don't need legal sanctions. Yes. Um, 
sort of curious about if, if the wisdom of crowds runs in the opposite direction. So is there less expressive power uh, or any way to encourage to sort of study that when it comes from a smaller body, say like presidential main executive orders or nine men in rows versus say Congress or state legislature? Does, does say a social movement have less legitimacy when it's relying on smaller, less, I guess, representative bodies um, for either the message signaling part or the attitudinal signaling part? Well, I think yes. So, I mean, so I, I, when I start talking about the information story, I start with legislation because I think that's the strongest case for there being this kind of, uh, of informational updating. But then I have a chapter where I talk about um, uh, executive and judicial action through, usually through enforcement of law. And I, I, you know, I, I kind of have a lot of different things to say, pointing in different directions. But in general, I think that there there is a weaker um, uh, signal sent and less updating about information when it comes from uh, uh, executive or uh, or judicial, uh, you know, sources. Um, you know, one thing that might be different is, is there's, so, there's so many claims made about criminal trials and sending a message. And I think maybe there is something plausible because of the fact that in order to get a conviction, you have to have a grand jury indict in many jurisdictions. You have to have a prosecutor who, in, in, in outside of federal prosecutors, is usually elected. So a, another person who has some reason to care about public attitudes. You have to have a prosecutor choose to prosecute, a grand jury choose to indict, uh, and then a jury choose to convict. And so maybe there, there is something to the argument that, that people observe these dramatic trials and outcomes and actually are influenced in their beliefs about things. Uh, and, and, and so maybe um, some of the uh, uh, concern and, and some of the kind of, I don't know, strong reactions to uh, acquittals and convictions that people don't like, maybe there really is something to that. But that's sort of the exceptional case. I think just a prosecutor by himself, a state attorney general by herself, or you know, uh, uh, you know, an appointed single judge, you know, doesn't really tell you much about um, about public attitudes. Yes. Uh, can you explain how this theory operates in the area of international law? I'm thinking specifically because you have a lot of, um, for example, Kyoto. You have a lot of um, international what you call agreements of agreements that basically a lot of countries have signed and ratified, but then you have you often see. Uh, China, USA, and Russia, and a few other big countries that just refuse to to ratify and follow the conventions that they have basically been drafting themselves. Right. So, um, okay. The uh, I, for, you know, first, let me give one more <laughs> analogy to like the the, the person who is currently anti-smoking. Uh, in the traffic example, you know, imagine that you drove a tank. You know, you again would have no interest in coordinating. Right? So there again, everyone would just see, wow, it's a tank. I'm going to stop. Right? I don't care if the light is green for me. So in the international context, 
What's essential here is, um, I, I, first of all, I only argue uh, uh, about the focal point theory in the international context, not about the attitudinal theory. Um, and what's essential is that there's some dispute in which um, there, there is the, the worst outcome for all the parties in the dispute is some failure to resolve the dispute. But that's not the case, obviously. I mean, that's not always the case. Sometimes uh, a, a, a nation has enough power that they could just do what they want. And it may be more costly when the other side doesn't back down, but it's, but it's worth it. So uh, take something very basic like um, the disputes over territory. Um, it, it's very clear that sometimes states have disputes over territory that is totally not worth going to war over. Right. I mean, sometimes it's, it's, it is in their interest to go to war over it, uh, and sometimes it's not. If it's, in their both if, it's, if it's in one side's interest to go to war over it, well, then there's no op opportunity for an expressive effect. Um, but, you know, when there are two countries and there's some tiny little island on which nothing is growing and no one lives, but they kind of like to have it rather than not have it, um, then they might be in this, this kind of game like that, uh, you know, where an international organization um, uh, or the International Court of Justice um, is able to make focal uh, the resolution, a particular resolution, by deciding at the end of some litigation, okay, you have the right to the property and you don't. Which means that the side who's told you have, you're entitled to the property is very unlikely to back down now. And if they're unlikely to back down now and it's not worth going to war over, then the other country is likely to back down. So when Professor Ginsburg and I looked at the International Court of Justice um, decisions, many of them took this form where um, it looked like uh, this was just a, a convenient way of two parties going to a third and saying, you know, we need you to, uh, you know, help us coordinate by kind of picking um, uh, one of us as, as the owner. And, uh, and then there's a reason to comply. And as I say, we found, we found compliance in, I think it was about 68% of the cases that they had decided um, at the time. Uh, another place where international law comes up is um, the laws of war. Uh, so I talked a bit about uh, the Lieber Code, which was this that Francis Lieber created for the Union during the Civil War, and it, became, it was the first sort of comprehensive codification of the rules of war, and it became influential on subsequent international efforts to develop um, these rules. And here's the thing. It, in a, there's, a, there's a very simple rational choice reason why people might um, exchange prisoners of war. You know, might might not abuse or kill prisoners of war, which is there's retaliation by the other side. I mean, that's something that that warring parties tend to talk about. They tend to try to find out how are the how are our prisoners being treated by the other side, and so you basically have you have hostages. We have hostages of yours. You have hostages of ours. So there's the possibility of cooperation that arises in a just uh, rational, self-interested way, but there is the fact that there are. Uh, complications that arise. There are ambiguities in the rules for treating prisoners, and it's possible, uh, for, for example, uh, it's, it's generally been understood that spies can be executed. And spies were people who are not wearing uniforms. 
so, and, and came behind, you know, uh, went over the, the demarcation between the warring parties. And so um, this, it becomes then important that you define what a spy is because what if I say, oh, here's a spy, I'm going to execute them, and then you say, hey, that wasn't a spy, so I'm going to execute one of your prisoners who's not a spy, and then we might, the cooperation might unravel completely. So it's useful to write down and a definition uh, that, ex that makes clear the explanation. So in the Lieber Code, for example, he addressed the following. What happens if a person operates as a spy behind enemy lines, is not captured, goes back to his side, puts on a uniform, fights in uniform, and then is captured? So they're a former spy. Can they be executed? Well, the important thing is that Whatever the answer that is, the important thing is that we have the same answer. We have the same expectation. Because if we don't have the same expectation, and you think the former spy is, is a spy, and I think it's not, and you execute the former spy, then I think you've brought, you violated this, this sort of agreement, and now I have to go and execute one of these non-spy prisoners, and then cooperation can unravel. So, so international law may, may work by helping help to uh, resolve these ambiguities that cause uh, cooperation to unravel. Um, and that, that problem of, of, of defining, of, of resolving ambiguity, I, I think is also a problem of coordination. Yes? So having some difficulty distinguishing the attitudinal signaling theory from legitimacy, because at least in a democracy it seems like the laws that the legislature passes are only going to rely on signal attitudes insofar as Well, um, legitimacy. Uh, I, I, you're, you're, you're right in a, in a, in a way. Um, the people talk about legitimacy. The psychologists who do this will talk about sources of legitimacy, and, and one source is procedural. And, and so um, the idea that if people feel like they're treated fairly by courts and police um, and respectfully and fairly, then they'll be more obedient to the substantive laws. Um, and the other is a more substantive kind of legitimacy, uh, which, uh, say, Paul Ra I associate with Paul Robinson and, and some others, uh, who say that if the, as long as the law, and he focuses on criminal law, as long as the criminal law mostly matches people's intuitions about what's just, then um, people will defer to it. And so even in those cases where they disagree with the law, if 90% if of the time they agree with it, they might say, well, you know, the law must have a point here. I should respect it, even if I don't agree with it in this case. Now, in the latter case, I guess, I guess you're right that, um, you know, if there's, it has something to do with, with lining up the law with, you know, with the attitudes. And so, uh, so there might be, uh, there might be something uh, to that. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't really think that, you know, the legitimacy, I mean, the legitimacy theorists, uh, I don't think are very uh, specific about where public attitudes come in. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think that this is, a, you know, if you, can, if you can say to the legitimacy theorists, you're just telling an information story. 
then maybe that's what I'm doing for those people. It's just saying, well, that is just an information story. Or else you need to further clarify how it's not just a simple information story that doesn't really require the word legitimacy, I don't think. I mean, it just, it, it does require an explanation of why people care about others' approval and disapproval. But I don't know if we think it, if it's about legitimacy. Yes. How do you distinguish between the marginal benefit and signaling of the law itself and just the social norms beforehand? I mean, it seems that people would probably be more aware in their everyday life what other people think of them than random law in the books. Um, okay. I mean, it doesn't seem that way to me. Obviously, people have information about, about you know, what they think, the people in their community. But when I, the thing about, well, but it's likely those estimates would vary enormously. So if you went and you asked everyone in, um, you know, Urbana, Illinois, uh, you know, how many people, uh, you know, do you approve of, of people smoking in restaurants, or, you know, especially if you did this 10 or 20 years ago? Uh, do you disapprove or approve? And what do you think most other people in your community think about this? Um, it, it, it might be true that if you did this over a thousand issues, that, pe that people would, on average, be right most of the time. But sometimes they would be they would be wrong. Um, psychologists study this this concept they call pluralistic ignorance, which is when people are wrong about what other people's attitudes are, and they think that they're in the minority when they're actually in the majority. And the reason that that can be persistent is because you think you're in the minority, you never express yourself because you don't want disapproval. And so then people don't discover what the real public view is. And, and so uh, there is some evidence that uh, smoking was like this, that, that slowly there were smoke, the smokers were declining as a percentage of the population and the uh, perceived harms of smoking were slowly going up. And so there was this very quiet shift in attitudes. And that when the law, and, and, but you can imagine the legislators being more sensitive to the reality than the average person is. And so then they enact some public smoking ban. And it's just a wake up call, especially for smokers who, you know, people tend to want to believe tend to believe a little bit what they want to believe. And so smokers obviously wanted to believe that nothing had changed. And it was only some cranky person uh, who would ever object to smoking. That was the way it was. Everyone accepted it. So if you didn't, you were just some sort of weird, hypersensitive person, right? And so they could continue to believe that. You know, wow, it's the third you know, weird, hypersensitive person I've seen this week. Until the legislature passes a law that they suddenly realize there's been a sea change in attitudes here. So, um, so I'm not arguing that that um, would be a powerful effect all the time, but I think it would be a small effect most of the time, and occasionally a very strong effect. For puncturing this, this uh, idea of, of pluralistic ignorance. You know, some of the psychologists, what, uh, what they've studied, uh, I don't know, this may be more meaningful to you than the smoking example was binge drinking on college campuses, where the claim is that you ask people on college campuses, do you approve of binge drinking? And, and uh, you know, something like, um, uh, 
you know, 30% of people will say yes, 70% will say no, and they'll say, and then they'll ask them, how many people do you think approve of binge drinking? And they'll just give the opposite answer. Like, oh, I think 70% of people on this campus approve of it. You know, not knowing, because it's so uncool to say anything critical of binge drinking, everyone assumes that everyone else actually goes along with the dominant discourse when they don't. So the theory was, if we could just expose students to the truth of the approval patterns, then they would do less of this. Yes? About the second theory, uh, would you consider this uh, information that Laura builds some sort of tool for kind of social engineering? And how do you see that from an economic analysis of law perspective? How is the legislator's uh, opinion about some certain topics, efficiency maximizing or maximizing? So the last chapter tries to uh, identify the normative implications of this. I have to say, I don't see a huge normative implication of, of the signaling model because exactly for the reasons I just gave, I think it's somewhat difficult to predict when it will be uh, a big effect. Um, and when it will be on behavior and when it will be a small effect on behavior. I mean, it does help to identify, I, I do actually, I talked a bit about uh, the establishment clause and defend the endorsement test as being important because uh, there is some danger that government endorsement of religion could actually affect behavior, religious behavior, like making people feel like they need to be more publicly religious in order to have approval uh, and, and that might uh, the a danger. So there's some normative uh, implications, but most of the normative implications I focus on are on the, on the folk uh, theory. Um, and I don't know, there are, there are a variety of things. I mean, one, one is just that um, it's important to know uh, why people comply in order to identify like where you're really going to need sanctions, right? So you, you, if, if, you, if you realize there is more than sanctions going on, and, and yet the, the expressive effect uh, exists in some domains and not in others, then you really need to focus your sanctions on the places where the focal effect does not exist. Not that it's a complete substitute, but, yeah, but it would affect that. Also explain something like why signage is important. You know, like why is it important to have no smoking signs? Well, if you know, you're trying to motivate private enforcement of the law, you need to be very clear to people about where the, what, the, what the law is and if you're going to, to do it that way because um, you're trying to get people to sort of confront, say, smokers, they have to know that they're in uh, a no smoking uh, zone. And um, I also say that the, the focal point theory is another reason to uh, prefer rules over standards because if you're trying to align expectations about people, you're not, you, you can't really do that with a standard. I mean, think about it in driving. You can't really say, you know, when two people are trying to merge into one lane uh, and there's no sign telling them what to do, then um, uh, the person, uh, who, you know, you should, you should behave reasonably. You know, that, that would be no good for, what you need is just say, person on the right should go first, right? It is something super clear. So to the extent you're trying to harness this expressive power, it's another reason to favor rules over standards. All right, well, 
I, I enjoyed uh, speaking to you, and I'll, I'll see some of you tomorrow. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.